You don't need to answer these out loud. You can answer them to yourself or on a piece of paper. True or false? Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. True or false? The gospel affects my beliefs in Jesus, but it does not affect my behavior or how I live my life because of Jesus. True or false? My faith in Jesus is a private matter, something to be kept secret to myself and not passed on to anyone else. True or false? My faith and my own understanding of that faith should never be challenged, stretched, or even called into question by anyone else. When it comes to the topic of religious beliefs, most people don't have any problem understanding that there are cerebral aspects to most religions. Academic and educational components involved in their understanding how the world is to function under the umbrella of their faith system or religious beliefs, whatever those beliefs might be. Now, there are some pagan religions out there that encourage you to empty your minds, have more of like an out-of-body kind of experience. In this religion, there really isn't anything truly as evil or bad in the world unless you consider it to be so. Good thoughts and Good vibes are basically the statement of faith of these esoteric and subjective belief systems. And these belief systems, you can't really judge anyone else, or no one can even judge you. That's because it's, it's all personal, it's subjective, it's, it's really a private matter with no objective truth that extends over everyone and for all time. There's not even a practical engagement with the world around you. It's really the spirit of this present evil age. Maybe you've heard it said before. What's good for you and what's good for me is really me. You do you and I'll do me. These types of religions or faith systems, they really just begin and end with your own personal feelings, your own thoughts, or your own personal experiences. No one can tell you you're wrong because you are the standard of righteousness. You live for no one greater than yourself because you are the most important person in this worldview. And the energy and motivation to do anything in life, for that matter, is really just derived from whatever makes you happy, the triune ego God of me, myself, and I is what ultimately matters. But when you think of any of the major world religions, so not so much this highly subjective and ultra-private religious beliefs, but when you think of religions like Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, and even Christianity, of course, When you mention these religions, what's the first image that typically comes to our minds? Well, it's probably a list of rules, right? You know, a set of do's and don'ts. An ancient book with an endless list of archaic and outdated commandments that 
feel out of touch with this modern world. People view these religious systems with a rather simplistic understanding. If you want to be good, just keep the rules, or at least most of them. And if you don't keep the rules, you're put on the bad list, hoping that somehow God, or whatever you call him, will grade you on a curve at the end of your life. But friends, let me be clear. Christianity involves the mind, the human will, the emotions, and the body. Christianity is a total package, supernatural encounter with the one true and living God of the universe. In fact, Jesus taught us that obeying the two greatest commands involves every fiber of your being and every nook and crevice of your life, including how we engage with the world around us. Jesus once was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if we're going to understand what Christianity is according to Jesus and reflect upon the godly examples of saints who have gone before us, we're going to come to these conclusions, beloved, about what Christianity is all about. If Jesus is your Savior, He is also your Lord. He is your Master. Your life is ultimately no longer your own. You're a slave of Christ, a doulos. He owns you. You've been bought with a price, and that price was the pure and precious blood of Jesus. If we truly believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fruit of that faith will become increasingly evident through a transformed life that is being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. Your faith in Jesus is certainly a personal matter, but your faith in Jesus is never a private one. Pledging your highest allegiance to King Jesus is not faith that should be zealous to be kept secret about. It is a faith that should be zealously passed on to others with the ambition in life to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us. What was that mission? To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And friends, if our faith is never challenged or never stretched, or at times even questioned by another Christian, we should be genuinely concerned on whether or not our faith is rooted in God's truth or if we've been sadly deceived and misled by others who don't know the truth. You see, if the vast majority of us in this building today 
claim to believe in the central doctrines of Christianity, it is of absolute necessity that we are reminded of what our beliefs are and how our beliefs affect the way we live. And just to add some clarity, I don't mean simply growing up in the Bible Belt or giving a nod that a God exists or going to church is a good use of your time. I'm not speaking about that. When I say Christianity to this morning, to the Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church and the guest with us, I mean the rock-solid belief and the historical and biblical account of someone who changed the course of human history and continues to change lives even today. I'm talking about the Christocentric, that means Christ-centered, creed of all Christians from all over the world which focus supremely on the incarnation and birth, life, ministry, sufferings, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, session, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the faith that is first rooted in the special revelation of God to us called the Holy Scriptures. Both the Old and the New Testaments, written by 40 human authors, stretching over 1,500 years of human history and over multiple continents. A collection of writings that were written by men in their own cultures, in their own language, and in their own experiences, but superseded and inspired by one divine author. I'm talking about the 66 books of the Bible, the scriptures which defend itself unashamedly as God breathed the scriptures, beloved, which equip us for every good work. With the God-inspired or God-breathed scriptures also came men from whom Jesus chose to represent him and teach others that would come after him. The apostles and their close associates, the, the men that were used of God in commissioned by Jesus to pen what we would call today our New Testament. What is the New Testament? It's the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the first 30 years of the Gospel going forward after Pentecost, which is the book of Acts, and then all the remaining letters of the New Testament. These 27 books of the New Testament, built upon the foundation of the 39 books of the Old Testament, have been preserved for the faith of God's people. Beloved, our Bibles, they might be leather-bound, but our Bibles are filled with the blood of the martyrs. Our faith has been preserved because people believed who Jesus is, what he taught, and that he's worth it even to die for his name. Beloved, that means that the Bibles we hold in our hands today have been preserved faith that was once for all delivered and for the building up of our faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, the faith we are to fight for, 1 Timothy 6.12, the good deposit preserved for us to strengthen our weak hands and feeble knees so that the gospel can go forward to God's elect. Those the apostle Paul said he was sent to proclaim the gospel to, Titus 1 verse 1. This is the faith that would eventually be passed on to other men to reach the next generation. Men who were discipled and mentored by the Apostle Paul. Men like Titus, 
who are to carry on the gospel baton and finish the work of establishing biblical church leadership and teaching sound doctrine. Friends, we have been learning for the last several weeks what sound doctrine is. It's that healthy food for the soul. It's food from God's word that strengthens the faith of true believers and teaches us how to think and how to behave in a way that honors the Lord. Friends, how does the message of Christianity, how does the message of God's saving grace affect our lives? What does belief in Jesus have to do with the relationships God puts in our life? What difference does it make to become a Christian? Does it matter at all? To answer those questions, we turn now to our study today. Please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 500. In 79. Titus chapter 2. This is your first time with us. We're currently in the middle of a sermon series through this small but power-packed letter of the New Testament called Titus. Uh, So far, uh, we have learned about God's sovereign plans to use both the Apostle Paul and his apostolic delegate, his representative Titus, to plant and strengthen gospel-preaching churches on the Mediterranean island called Crete. Uh, So sometime after Acts 27, after Paul had spent some time in Crete and moved on, Paul got word that there was trouble in the churches on the island of Crete. There were Christians facing trouble. And like a good dad, like a good pastor, uh, Paul wanted to do what he could in God's providence to see these problems dealt with. You see, there was false teaching. There was unsound doctrine flowing out of the mouths from unqualified false teachers that were dividing these churches. Therefore, Paul informed Titus that these churches needed qualified elders or overseers or pastors. They're just biblical church leaders. Those words are used in the New Testament interchangeably. You see, Christ's sheep needed faithful shepherds to lead them. He needed men, those believers, those churches, those early Christians. They needed those who smelled like, looked like, taught like Jesus, our good shepherd. So in Titus 1, verses 5 to 9, we looked at the requirements, the character qualifications for the type of men that Titus was to look for. He was to look for God's most wanted men in place in these roles. And really last week we learned that if you summarize really chapter 1, what these men are like, they're faithful men. They're faithful men. They're men who are faithful to the Lord with how they live their lives. They're faithful to their wives and how they care for their children. And they're faithful to teach sound doctrine and rebuke or confront those who contradict it. Once these faithful men were put in place, Paul was then informing Titus that the problems in the churches had gotten to a level that they needed but they needed. They didn't need to be procrastinated. They didn't need to be winked at. But they needed to be addressed. And they needed to be dealt with immediately. The ungodly and worldly examples of these deceived wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, they were causing divisions and many church splits, if you will, in the life of these churches. 
So Paul gave Titus some very clear orders as a mentor to a mentee, as a general sitting his marine into the island of Crete. And he basically tells Titus this in chapter 1. Deal with the source of the problems and do so with truth, love, and courage. Look with me again at Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Friends, the house rules in God's house were being disregarded and even dismantled by these wolves in sheep's clothing. And if any church on the island of Crete, and any church in the River Valley, and any church like CCBC in Barling, Arkansas, wants to have peace and order in God's house, we have to build his church his way. And that's really a summary of Titus chapter 1. But once Titus dealt with these naysayers, venomous snakes, wolves in sheep's clothing, unregenerate leaders in the church, what was he to do next? What was on his to-do list to care for the real and true sheep that were sitting there in these churches? Let's look together now at Titus chapter 2. Follow with me. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to waiting for our blessed, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Earlier I asked a question or two. How does the message of Christianity affect how we live? How does my faith in Jesus have any effect of how I relate to others God puts in my life? Well, here's what Titus 2 tells us. If you're taking notes, I have two main points. Number one, learning sound doctrine and obeying sound doctrine changes how we think and how we behave. Learning sound doctrine and obeying sound doctrine changes how we think and how we behave. Point number two, God's grace through Jesus rescues our selfish ambitions and redeems them for good works that bring God glory. God's grace through Jesus rescues our selfish ambitions and redeems them for good works that bring God glory. Let's look at that first point about learning and obeying sound doctrine. Uh, Here in this section, Paul is going to contrast. He's going to put up God's man with the godless men. He's going to give Titus his next to-do list, his job description of what he must do to care for God's people in these churches. And he lines them up right next to the mess that these faithless men had made in God's house. Paul, in essence, says, Titus, you are my HGTV homemaker for the island of Crete. Get in those houses, renovate those rooms, and flip those houses into churches that bring God glory once again. Well, in order for Titus to flip these houses and make them beautiful, bring them back to what brings God glory and benefits his people, Titus was to teach and to model by example what other believers should follow. He was to teach and model by example what other believers should follow. Now, these are more like subpoints. These are not on the screen, so you can just track with me on where we're going. What was Titus to do then if he was to correct, like a chiropractor, cracking our backs right back in line, what the false teachers have made perverse and broken in God's house? Well, the first thing he was to do was to uphold sound doctrine. He was to uphold sound doctrine. That's really right there in verse 1. But as for you, as for you, Titus, as for you, my mentee, as for you, my representative, as for you, my young budding preacher, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the word teach here in the ESV translation has a more general connotation to it. It doesn't simply mean instruct like you're standing in a classroom, you know, writing on a chalkboard. It more broadly refers to speaking or proclaiming or talking about 
sound doctrine. In other words, when Titus entered into these churches, he was to be a fountain of godly wisdom. When he opened his mouth, the children of God could drink from godly wisdom. He was to be a thief. If he was going to rebel, you prick him, he bled the scriptures. If he was going to replenish the thirsty souls of these bewildered sheep, he would be most useful to them, Paul says, by giving them truth. Not tickling their ears, not wasting their time, not entertaining them, giving them truth. Giving them counsel that God was pleased with. Giving them corrections that God affirmed. And by modeling for the church what every believer should aspire to. A hunger for sound teaching and a love to proclaim it to others. Did you know you don't have to be a preacher or a teacher to be used of God to spread God's word to others? Did you know that? You listen to me for an hour, often a little more, once a week. But I'm not around 95% of the people you are. Friends, you're on the front lines. Speak sound doctrine. You don't need to be a pastor or a pulpit. Open your mouth. Use whatever God's already told you and given you. And watch God transform lives from you for his glory. Friends, that's, that's really what Titus was to do. Set the believers an example. Teach sound doctrine. And watch the ripple effect. Watch the tsunami of God's word go out into the world on the island of Crete. Did you notice how he addresses, though, not just the men in the church? He doesn't just address the elders in the church, though we did that in chapter 1. Find these faithful men to shepherd. Titus and Paul both know that men and women, boys and girls, They all need sound teaching. Look at verses 2 to 6. He says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You see, Paul exhorts Titus to start this home makeover in God's house by first appealing to those who are older in the churches. But he's not speaking merely to those who are older in age, though that is certainly implied there. He's speaking even more aptly to those who are more mature in wisdom, those who are more mature in their godliness, their life experience, and their maturity in godliness is a very important component in the life of these churches. You see, Paul was not concerned so much about those with gray hair or 
wrinkles in their skin. He, he was talking about those. He was addressing those who had been walking with God longer in order to mentor those who were younger than them in the faith. In verses 2 and 3, he directs Titus' focus. Did you notice there? The older men and the older women in these churches. According to Paul's instructions here, older men are to speak and act in such a way that provides young men a godly example to follow. So brothers, if you consider yourself an older man, I'll let you and Jesus work that out. You don't need a title in God's hand or elder next to your name. You don't need to serve on a committee. You don't need deacon or elder next to your name. You just need to set a godly example for younger men to look up to. That's exactly what he's going to get into in Titus chapter 2. So if you're a man who's had the blessing to grow up and learn under a godly dad, you are blessed. God has been kind to you. But not every man can make that claim. And that's why God gives us spiritual fathers in the church as well. Those who embody what our biological daddies were lacking in how they raised us. Did you notice what he says here? What older men must be because of what often paralyzes young men? Notice again the contrast. Older men, look at verse 2, they're to be sober-minded, circumspect, watchful, vigilant. They're men who have peripheral vision when it comes to decision-making. They are known as men who weigh out their options and they make sound decisions with the information they're given. In that sense, they aren't men that are always caught off guard by everything. They're not just shot all the time, having whiplash to everything they encounter in life. They don't walk around with spiritual tunnel vision. They're aware. They're alert. They're alert to trials. They're alert to temptations. They're alert to false teaching. They're alert to all sorts of things. But they're also very alert to what's going on in the lives of God's people. These men, when they come into church, they don't think about simply what seat they get. They're aware of their surroundings. They're vigilant. They are men that I think lead the charge in reminding believers of spiritual warfare. You know, the devil's greatest lie is getting you to think he doesn't exist. The devil's greatest lie is to make you think that there is no supernatural forces of evil in the heavenly places. Older men are to be like experienced watchdogs. They're always attuned to what's going on. Older men are to be sober-minded. These older men are also to be dignified. Did you notice that in verse 2? That just means respectable, honorable. They're not known as silly men. You can certainly have humor. You can have some funny jokes. But you're not a goofball. You're not a little boy in an adult body. But you're men who are worthy to listen to and follow. There's a gravitas. When you enter a room, you don't intimidate people, but when you speak, 
There's a gravity, there's a weight when you speak. And people know it when they're around you. Older men are also to be self-controlled. That means they're to be temperate. They have a handle on their emotions and their appetites. You see, in contrast to the false teachers that cause division in the churches, these older men bring a sense of peace and security and stability to the churches and their families. While the Cretans were stereotyped as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, these men are to be known as men who tame the tongue. They say the truth. They use their Christian freedoms wisely, examining their conscience and making decisions that are out of love for those around them. Their lives show self-control because Jesus is in control of their life. And lastly, older men are to be sound in faith, in love, and in sin of God. Their convictions, these are men of God. They are men of God. Their convictions are biblical, and their faith is sound. They are men anchored in the truth. They're not thrown around and tossed around by every new teaching or fad or scare alert in the world and in churches. They give a little buoyancy to other believers' lives. Their love is contagious to be around. They are certainly serious, but they can also be tender. And their perseverance is something commendable too. Their perseverance through trials and hardships is is worth noting and imitating in your life. Uh, Men who are steadfast, they can know the difference between an argument I need to avoid and something I need to enter into to defend. Like Jesus, they are shrewd as a serpent, but innocent as doves. If they need to fight and fight on a hill, they do it. Because they're not quitters. When the going gets tough, they don't jump ship first. There's a sense of bend but don't break to their life. Their work ethics, how they deal with conflict. These men are steadfast. Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Friends, he's just saying older men are to be Christ-like. Meek and gentle, but mighty and strong all at the same time. Like our Lord, the one who with the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame because he trusted in the goodness of his heavenly Father. Therefore, older men are to set the temperature of the spiritual fervor and godliness in God's house. They are to set the temperature for young men to grow up into and become mature as well. Did you notice there's only one verse for young men? Because Paul knows something about young men. He used to be one. Look at verse 6, Titus 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Young men, be self-controlled. 
What do you think Paul's getting at here? When he contrasts these characteristics of older men with this one exhortation for younger men. Let me give you an illustration. It's the picture of two men at a stoplight. A young man in his teens driving a brand new convertible Corvette. He's rearing up his V8 engine while he's looking at the older man in his 70s driving his beat-up pickup truck he got 30 years ago. The young man, flexing his car and muscles, provokes the older man to race him. And the older man just smiles. When the light turns green, the tires skid across the concrete, the young man speeds off fast and furious, and then immediately gets caught by the police. While the older man passes by, smiling and waving at the young man who just got a speeding ticket. Friends, that's a great image of what characterizes most young men. They're zealous, they're competitive, and they're often prideful, and they're nearsighted in their judgments. Their zeal and enthusiasm is commendable, but they lack a whole lot of wisdom and foresight. Young men are often paralyzed by only seeing the here and the now. I'm to be patient. I must have. But they aren't willing to be patient. They aren't willing to wait. They often don't consider the implications and consequences of their decisions. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Whether it's from dating to their checkbook to holding down a job, these young men need lots of guidance. They need patience. They need wisdom. They need self-control. Like I mentioned last week, younger believers, and this is both men and women, boys and girls, are often like swinging pendulums. They're off reading this book, and they're off watching that YouTube clip, and they're off over here dating this person and that person, and they quit this job and get this job, and they leave that school and this apartment, and on and on and on it goes. Indecision is their middle name, and poor decisions is their last name. can't say amen. Might as well say ouch. That's why young believers, especially young men, need wise men of God in their lives. They need men to disciple them, men to guide them, men to help them in basic life skills and how to make decisions that honor God with wisdom and self-control. And young men, I'm looking in the mirror When I preach this, young men need the humility to slow down and ask for help. Young men, slow down and ask for help. But this wasn't just a man church. This wasn't like masculine Baptist church of Crete. There were ladies there, plenty of them. Paul was caring about the men, but also the women in this church. Titus was to instruct and encourage the older women in the churches to mentor, encourage the younger women who probably had been misled by some of these false teachers in Crete. He says right there, look at verse 3, that older women are to be reverent in behavior. (laughs) I'll tell you all a funny joke. In my notes, I must have had a typo. It says reverent in heaviness. I, I have no idea why that just showed up on there. 
I would normally never tell you that. Makes no point on the sermon, but there it is. Glad I caught that before I actually used that in the sermon. Reverent in behavior. It just means godly, holy. Like the older men, they're leading the charge of what it means to be respectable and worthy to imitate in your life. He then goes on to explain and expound a little bit on this godliness in contrast to the wild and worldly women, the unruly women that were probably flaunting their debauchery on the island of Crete. He says older women, did you see there in verse 2, they are not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Older women are to be known for using their words to build up and not tear down. They aren't controlled by alcohol or substance abuse either. They're, they're women who are self-controlled. They're not addicted or enslaved to anything. Uh, from the words they use all the way to the disciplines of showing self-control, uh, these women encourage younger women to be a blessing to their husbands and their children. In that way, they are to be literally, in the, in the original language, husband lovers and children lovers. Ladies, the world we live in wants to pull you away from that high calling. The world we live in wants you to say, go get yours. To the wind with a ball and chain of a lousy husband, to the wind with the hindrance and distraction of children, you go get yours. Prove yourself. Outdo men. Beloved, you're not hearing that from high calling. That's the voices in your ear. It is a noble and high calling to be a husband lover and a children lover. To this end, these women don't use their homes or their Bible studies or small groups or text messages or phone calls or social media outlets or the gym, the grocery store, or the hair salon for facilitating gossip or creating it. In that sense, when they hear someone complaining and venting about another person, as some of us might say, their discernment antenna goes up. They're not afraid to stop the conversation. If slander or gossip is what the person is spewing to them, they may even respectfully but boldly shut the conversation down. That's enough. That's enough. Brothers and sisters, just a word of advice to both older women and younger women, older men and younger men. If a person has a pattern or habit of talking poorly about others to you, they probably talk poorly about you when you aren't around them. If a person has a pattern or a habit of talking poorly about others to you, they probably talk poorly about you when you aren't around. That's why these women were not to be slanderers. The word at its root literally means to be demon in their speech. Slanderers, accusers, division makers. I think Proverbs 26.20 is a good word to remember. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. This is my encouragement to all of us. If someone brings you a lit match with juicy gossip or lies or slander, 
Don't give them wood to burn. Douse it out with water and the quarreling will stop. Now, more positively speaking, these older women who understood their Bibles well, or at least Genesis 1 and 2 at this point in history probably, they understood what the Bible taught on biblical headship or biblical authority in the home, where the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And the high and noble calling of being a wife and a mother who manages the household affairs is their first calling. Doesn't mean they can't do anything outside four walls on your cul-de-sac. That's not what the text is teaching. But women, if you are married and you have children, your home base, your primary calling is making sure you are coming alongside your husband and caring for your children. That may look different at different stages in life. Young children, older children, empty nesters. There might be situations where you're a single mom and you have to work several jobs. You have to think through all those different challenges that may arise. Proverbs 31 is a wonderful example of the ideal woman. She doesn't sit at home with her feet up, making biscuits in the back and flipping bacon. No, she's industrious, she's hardworking, she sells, and she is godly and concerned about her husband and children. It's the home as her primary and first home base. She's not neglectful of her husband and children, but she's focused on what God has first called her to be and to do. Ladies, if you grew up in a home with a mom who loved you and modeled Titus 2 to you, you need to praise God for them. Don't just tell them that on Mother's Day. Tell them a lot more than just once a year. Thank God for them and tell them, thank you for the character and the example you set for me. But if you didn't have a type of mom that we see here in Titus 2, I would encourage you to prayerfully look for her. Come talk to me that may embody many of the traits that maybe your mom didn't have. Come talk to me. Come talk to the prospective elders. We may commend other women for you to look up to and learn under. If you're a young man wanting to learn what it means to be a godly husband and father, or you're just simply wanting to mentor a younger man in the faith, I'd encourage you to read The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott or The Shepherd Leader at Home by Timothy Whitmer. That's The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott and The Shepherd Leader at Home by Timothy Whitmer. And likewise, if you're a young woman wanting to learn what it means to be a godly wife or mother, and you're wanting to maybe mentor another woman, a young lady in the church, I'd encourage you to read The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace or Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney. Excellent Wife by Martha Peace, Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney. Brothers and sisters, let me speak to you at large. Fathers should model for their daughter what kind of man they should marry. Mothers should model for their daughters how to love the husbands they married. And if a father or mother hasn't done that well for you, then look for godly men and women in the local church who can because the older men and the older women in Titus 2 doesn't necessarily speak about your biological mom and dad. That's why the local church is here. That's why joining a local church is more than just a name on a roll. It's for your spiritual good. 
that God may provide you a spiritual family, the household of God that cares for you better than your own biological family. That's God's gift to us so that none of us are orphans or we have to try to go figure it all out by ourselves. Well, apart from encouraging all these men and women in these different life stages, Titus was, in fact, a trailblazer. He was like all leaders. They had to set out in front of the flock and lead by example. Titus was to be for them what you should desire for me as your lead pastor, what you should desire for the future elders or any preacher or Bible study leader in this church. We are called to teach what the Bible teaches, not what we want it to teach. We are to teach. We are called to teach. We are called to teach what the Bible teaches, not what we want it to teach. I'd encourage you maybe copy and print that out and put it inside your Bible next time you have a Bible study. Well, we should all be committed to teaching and speaking God's word. Secondly, Paul exhorted Titus, and this is a subpoint: model a godly life that silences the accusations of liars. Model a godly life that silences the accusations of liars. Look at Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Friends, if you want to be greatly used of God, then settle it in your minds this morning. Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. But we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Words can also be powerful when they are guided by the Holy Spirit. Words that you and I speak and words that you and I refrain from speaking can have a powerful effect on those around us. In his classic book, Lectures to My Students, Charles Spurgeon used to instruct his students in the pastor's college who eagerly desired to be pastors. Many of those lectures are captured in this book, and they are filled with many wise words that were spoken to his students every Friday in his study. As these zealous young men learned from a seasoned minister like Spurgeon, they heard truths that they would need for the beginning of their ministry and throughout the duration of their ministry. In this chapter on how to bear up criticism as a minister of the gospel, Spurgeon gives the unforgettable advice that we would all do well to heed. Begin your ministry with one blind eye and one deaf ear. He explains. In the case of false reports against yourself, for the most part, use the deaf ear. Unfortunately, liars are not yet extinct. Like Richard Baxter and John Bunyan, you may be accused of crimes which your soul abhors. Be not staggered thereby, for this trial is befallen the very best of men, and even your Lord did not escape the envenomed tongue of falsehood. In almost all cases, it is the wisest course to let such things die a natural death. A great lie, if unnoticed, it's like a big fish out of water. It dashes and plunges and breaks itself to death in a short time. To answer it is to supply it with its element and help it to a longer life. Falsehoods usually carry their own refutation somewhere about them and sting themselves to death. Some lies especially have a peculiar smell 
which betrays their rottenness to every honest nose. If you are disturbed by them, the object of their intention, invention, is partly answered. But your silent endurance disappoints malice and gives you a partial victory, which God and his care of you will soon turn into a complete deliverance. Your blameless life will be your defense. And those who have seen it will not allow you to be condemned so readily as your slanders expect. Only abstain from fighting your own battles. And in nine cases out of ten, your accusers will gain nothing by their malevolence, but chagrin for themselves and contempt from others. To prosecute the slanderer is very seldom wise. Beloved, pray that God would give each one of us one blind eye and one deaf ear towards our opponents. Friends, come back tonight. As Brother Tom Chain teaches in Romans 12, verses 17 to 21, how do you respond to evil and injustice? How do you overcome evil with good? If that interests you, I teach you up, Brother Tom. They may come back. In verses 9 and 10, Paul then goes on to exhort those who find themselves in probably some of the harshest conditions on the island of Crete, conditions where it might be very difficult to have one deaf ear And he speaks about those who were bound to earthly masters, uh, those who were slaves in this particular point in history. He tells these bondservants to show forth the fruit of the Spirit, to be godly, even when you're in a very difficult situation. He tells them that bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In our modern socioeconomic context, this might be likened to working for a boss. As Christians... Whether we have believers over us as bosses or non-Christians above us as bosses, our attitudes in the workplace are saying something about Jesus. Our attitudes in the workplace are saying something about Jesus. If it's a poor attitude, it brings reproach in the name of Christ. If it's a good one, It may even open up evangelistic conversations at work as you adorn the doctrine of God. Did you notice that bondservants here are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative? You know what it basically means? Don't talk back to your boss. Don't be argumentative. Don't try to falsely accuse, mudsling, or fight them. Instead, show forth your faith in Christ by ultimately serving Christ as your ultimate employer, not even an earthly master. He says you are to be loyal, dependable, fulfilling the task, doing it all in good faith, he says. Instead of pilfering, it literally means embezzlement, stealing time, stealing money, stealing information you are not privy to have, he says show integrity in the workplace to those who you are serving under. If you do this, Paul says, you adorn the doctrine of God. Friends, there's no part of our lives that Jesus is not Lord. He's Lord of our living rooms. He's Lord of the workplace. He's Lord of your cell phone. He's Lord of the church. He's Lord of it all. Friends, Jesus is the one you're seeking to please in whatever sphere of life you're in. Because people are watching. And how we work, how we live, how we speak, How we act says something about Jesus. 
And thirdly, Paul exhorts Titus to stand his ground and fulfilling the work God gave him to do. Look at verse 15 really quickly. Titus 2.15, this is the last exhortation he gives to Titus directly. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke them with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see, these false teachers had distorted and damaged God's house. And Titus was to give them that gospel makeover. In other words, Titus needed to go into the kitchen, throw out all the junk food, throw out all the spoiled food that had mold on it, and replenish the groceries with healthy food. Pure milk from God's word, solid meat from God's word, so that God's children would be nourished and built up. But friends, Titus's task was not an easy one. Anytime you're used of God, anytime you take the Bible serious, Anytime you start wanting to be a man or woman of God full of integrity, steadfastness, truth, and sound doctrine, you're going to be opposed. Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil. You see, there was a mess in these churches. Whole families were uprooted and divided. It says they were upset, turned upside down. Titus had a massive task in front of him. And friends, it's implied there. He says, do not let anyone disregard you. It means some people didn't take him serious. Some people bucked him. Some of them were insubordinate. Some of them slandered him, the faithful leader sent from Paul. Friends, it's it's encouraging to know that our God is bigger than any opponent we may ever face. It's encouraging to know that our God is bigger than the challenges you're facing in your parenting. It's encouraging, ladies, that your God is trustworthy even when your husbands and children are hard to live with. Husbands, it is encouraging to know that our God is big enough for your boss at work, for your wife and children at home. Man or woman, boy or girl, our God is so much bigger than anything we're going to face in this life. That should cause us not to fear men, but trust God. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Well, friends, this leads us to our last point. Titus needed motivation for his tough task. Paul needed motivation for his tough task. The churches on the island of Crete, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the bond servants that were working under difficult masters, they all needed motivation. They all needed fuel for the road ahead. What did Paul say would be sufficient to fuel the engine to stay faithful? Which leads to our last point, number two. God's grace through Jesus rescues our selfish ambitions and redeems them for good works that bring God glory. In verses 11 to 14, we see a beautiful summary of the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity that actually affects the way we live. How our faith is rooted in objective, historical, ontological, eternal truth, And how our faith in God through Jesus is transformed 
by the evidence of good works that bring God glory. Notice what he says in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. Four, for all you students of the scriptures, circle four, that's gar, that's grounding the argument of why you should do the previous first 10 verses. Four, this is why, here's your because, here's all the motivation you'll ever need as a mom, as a dad, as a servant. This is what you're gonna need, this is it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." In four verses in our English Bible, it's one sentence in Greek. Paul is just rolling out the red carpet, taking the bowling ball, and I'm going to hit all the pins down with one overarching truth. Friends, the grace of God in Jesus is all you need to live a life of godliness. That's all you need. You need the grace of God to motivate you, the grace of God to rescue you, and the grace of God you see in men and women who are walking with God in front of you. Look at verse 11. He explains what the grace of God is. We read, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has already come. God's grace, his unmerited favor, as Alan talked about earlier, towards wicked sinners has been revealed to us. In fact, to the whole world has been made available to all the nations through the arrival of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became incarnate, stepped down into human history by taking on human flesh, listen, and becoming a man and a servant. The perfect man and the suffering servant. His life on earth was the perfect example of holiness, humility, love, faith, self-control, steadfastness, goodness, integrity, and sound teaching. When Jesus spoke, when Jesus loved, when Jesus served, when Jesus lived his life, there was not a moment, there was not a second, there was not an hour, there was not a day, there was not a year that his eyes weren't on his heavenly father. There was not a moment in his life that he did not love his heavenly father with all his heart, with all his might, with all his soul. Oh, friends, Jesus is the perfect example. His tender care is more perfect than any mother could have ever given you. His courageous guidance is better than any father could have ever given you. And his model, his example of a lowly servant is the humility we are called to imitate in the life of our church. Friends, he is our supreme example because he obeyed God in every sphere of his life. But friends, we all face that temptation, though, right? Our faith is in that truth. But the way we live sometimes contradicts it, doesn't it? 
The way we raise our kids, the way we think about our spouse, the way we use our words, the way we deal with gossip and slander and truth and falsehood, sometimes we look more like the unbelieving world than we do our Savior, don't we? Kids, this is your moment to look at me. Have you had any moments this week where your mom and dad told you to do something and you just didn't want to do it? Raise your hand. Let's get honest. All right? Even adults, were you told to do something this week you didn't want to do? Okay, you're all liars if you don't raise your hand. Kids, next time instead of stomping your feet or running off like we all feel like doing inside, just say, Mom and Dad, I know the right thing to do, but inside I don't want to. I know it's the right thing to do to obey you, but I don't want to. Would you pray for me? Friends, that's not true for kids only. That's for adults too. There's a war. It's a tug of war to please God with my life or my flesh, to live for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. Friends, this is the temptation and the war that goes on in all our souls. Friends, we need men and women of God to call out worldliness in our life, to help us fight sin so that we live lives that commend the gospel. Friends, what is worldliness? David Wells puts it very bluntly. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Modernity is worldliness and it has concealed its value so adroitly in the abundance, the comfort, and the wizardry of our age that even those who call themselves the people of God seldom recognize them for what they are. Friends, the battle in the Christian life is threefold. You know this. Our enemies are against the flesh, the world, and the devil. But guess what? There's one enemy that we forgot to mention. Pride. Pride. What is the core issue of most of our marriage problems? Our pride. What is the core of most of our parenting problems? Our pride. What is the core of most of our problems at work? Our pride. What is the core of most of our problems in the church? Our pride. What is the core of most of our problems in our family, with our friends, and the overall darkness of this present evil age? It's our pride. From terrorism in Afghanistan to corrupt politicians in the White House to rank hypocrisy in so-called gospel-preaching churches down to what we do when no one's watching, the insatiable lust and monster of pride waits to be fed inside us. Friends, that's why we need someone more powerful than ourselves to kill that monster. I don't have the strength to wrestle the pride of Blake Boylston. Jeff doesn't have the strength to wrestle the pride of Jeff. None of us do. We need someone that can rescue us, redeem us, deliver us, and teach us how to walk in humility. And friends, there's only been one who has appeared and one day will appear again that can do that for you. And that's King Jesus. He came in the form of a man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. Jesus of Nazareth, truly God and truly man. He is the Son of God, and He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He bore our sin on the tree, bearing the penalty we deserve, the sins we have spewed in God's face, and God's wrath fell upon Him, satisfying His justice.
for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. And God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of our heavenly father. And he's promised that one day all his enemies will be under his feet. And he's coming back to save those who believe and to judge those who don't. Friends, our lives are between two days. The incarnate son of God when he came and walked this earth and the day he's coming back. That's all the motivation you and I will ever need to kill pride, to put to death the flesh, to resist the devil, and to not be like the world. Brothers and sisters, the narrow way is a hard way, isn't it? It is the road less traveled the longer you live this life. Did you notice in verse 15 that Titus I think he embodies from Paul that it's a tough work, but it's a work that's worthy. Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Friends, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what your household looks like today. I don't know what your work or your transition between jobs, or how you're dealing with pride in your own life. But friend, whatever war, whatever battle, whatever difficulty you're facing, it's worth it. Because Jesus is who he says he is. And he is coming back. And today does count for eternity. Christ gave himself for us to rescue us from our selfish ambitions and redeem us from sin for good works. Beloved, does the present direction of your life show it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for the grace that has been given to us and demonstrated through your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage from Titus chapter 2 to promote peace and order in your church here at CCBC. I pray that older men and older women would see their responsibility to lean in and pour into the next generation. Lord, I pray for those of us who are younger would slow down and humble ourselves and ask for help. Lord, I pray that we would even take time this week to thank our moms and dads if they've modeled these attributes in any way. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone among us that didn't have a mom and dad that modeled this for them that you would provide for them a spiritual mom or a spiritual dad or a big brother or a big sister in the faith to help them fight the good fight, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in their life and to be zealous for good works that bring you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.